0: Yes, hello and welcome to another episode of Bio2040, where we interview thought leaders in the field of biomedical research and discover bottlenecks as well as opportunities to accelerate the finding of cures for all human diseases. And today I'm very excited to have on the show Professor Paul Glossier, who is both a practitioner as well as a well-renowned researcher and has written uh, several books as well as uh, many papers on the subject. Uh, and Specifically, I, I came across him because he wrote um, a paper on uh, the waste in research, and uh, we'll get into that uh, in the show. And so I'm very excited to have you on the show, Paul. Welcome, and please uh, introduce yourself a little bit to our, to our audience.
1: Okay, it's great to be here, Flavio. Um, so I am have been a general practitioner as well as a researcher, as you mentioned, and um, have been trying to connect the worlds of research to the worlds of clinical practice for most of my career, particularly inspired by Dave Sackett, one of the thought leaders in evidence-based medicine, but came across this problem of the um, of the waste that occurs in research because of that. Okay, great.
0: And uh so so you've been uh you know I came across you uh because you had written a paper in, in 2009 looking at uh how much of the funding that goes into biomedical research uh is wasted and 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 your conclusion with uh, you your colleague Elaine uh, Chalmers was that 85% of research is wasted. Can can you tell us yeah. a little bit about how you I mean how did you first get into like uh, yes. that, and, and then how did you come up with that number that sounds so, so high?
1: <laughs> it's, it, was, it surprised us as well. Yeah. So the story was I was working as a general practitioner in Oxford at the time. I was trying to use the research that we discovered in a thing called the ACP Journal Club. Um, and I kept going, but I can't use this. I don't know what dose to give the patients. I don't know precisely what the instructions are. All sorts of things were missing from the things that we had found good evidence for. Not all of of them were like this, but we we, um, did a review and found at least 50% of clinical trials that we thought were ready to implement in practice we couldn't actually use in practice because they weren't sufficiently well described. And I was complaining over a cup of coffee to this about Ian and he was saying, Well, they they're all a waste because they're not answering the questions important to patients and clinicians and I said, wait, wait. And as we talked about this, we realized there were all these stages to research, the questions you ask, the design of the questions whether you ever publish it, and 50% of the research doesn't get published, and then how usable that research is at the end of the day. And so in the 2009 paper, we came up with that four-stage model. Mm -hmm. And for three of the stages, we could actually estimate how much waste there was. So, for example, 50% of research at least never gets published. Well, that's a
0: waste.
1: 50% of what does get published is unusable. Well, that's a waste. (laughs) And 50%... 50% of it at least has avoidable design flaws. It's hard to have a perfect study, there's often things you can't do, can't get 100% of patients to comply for example, but these were avoidable design flaws in studies, simple things that could have been done to fix it. So we said, well you put those three 50% together and that technically comes to 87.5%, but we rounded that down to be generous to 85% of the research has avoidable problems in it.
0: That's that's it's it's a, it's really astounding. So, so, I just want to make sure we we uh uh to our listeners make sure we we understand exactly. I, I want to get into a, a bit of the details because it's really such a high uh, uh, number. Sure. So sure. so uh, maybe first, can you uh, just quickly run us through what is the data set that
1: is that is you're basing that eighty five percent on? Maybe just give us a quick uh, walk through through that. Well, it's, so it's no single data set. The easiest is um, a number of studies have been done on the proportion of clinical trials that get published. So Jonathan Ross did a really nice study where he used the clinicaltrials.gov database, did a, did a follow-up of them, gave them generous time, several years in which they could publish from the end of the study, et cetera, and he found 50% non-publication mm. across the board. Mm. That's private you know, comp- pharmaceutical company ones, but government-funded things. Um, so all across the board, it was 50%, and it was true for fa- all across all countries and across all phases of trials. Got it. In fact, it's best documented for clinical trials, but as we've dug back further in preclinical studies, phase one studies, etc., mm-hmm. the problems are at least as great there, if not worse. Got it. So the, re- the reporting stuff was, as I mentioned to you, um, but then – um, other work by Anwen Chen, for example, he looked at whether people switch outcomes or not, or report all the outcomes that they said they were going to do in the protocol. Mm-hmm. And we discover that people publish the paper, but they only publish some of the outcomes. They often switch, which they said was the primary outcome, mm. where that doesn't turn out the way they wanted. Mm. So for all of those reasons, we said, well, there's pretty good documentation of that. Mm. And then on the design stuff, the most beautiful piece of work has been done by a student of Philip Rovo's. Um, which was in the BMJ, where he looked at the avoidable waste in the design of the studies, mm. where they looked through them and they said, okay, here are the design flaws, but how many of those were avoidable? You could have fixed that in the mm. way I designed the study. Right. And again, that was at least 50%. So it's it's piecing together those data sets, which when you put them together, made this dramatic figure that's got a lot of attention, right. I must admit. We, we, we've been incredibly surprised by the degree of attention that, that it's got. Some people questioning the figure, but others saying, yeah, we recognize the problem now. What do we do about it? Right, I mean, I mean, whether you know,
0: even if at the end the actual number is sixty-five percent, it, it's still it's still incredibly yeah high, uh, right? So uh, <laughs> you know, as, as as a taxpayer and as a patient, uh, I think we're all in in in, uh, in the same boat here. You know, we're we're paying for this one way or the other, yep. and uh, and uh, so this it's, it's it's definitely something that the public should should know about, and and uh, uh, we should look at. and That's why it's part of the reason I started this this podcast was to like, look at these things and say, well, what the, what the heck is going on? What can we, and, and then at some point say, what can we do about it? So, so maybe if, yeah. we, if, if you're willing, uh, how about we go into these three steps uh, a little bit deeper, and just trying to understand what is uh, according to your understanding that you've studied that extensively, what is happening? For example, on the first stage you said that 50% of uh, published reports Uh, uh, sorry, of of trials that are registered in clinical trials, then even years later, there's still no publication happening. Can you tell us what is happening? What is leading to that 50% of uh, uh, trials not getting published?
1: Yeah. So the first important thing to understand is, um, and Kay Dickerson um, established this many years ago, it's the authors not submitting, which is the major problem. But that may be because they have negative things and they think, oh, I'm not going to get this in a major journal. But there's no easy answers here, by mm. the way, because we've discovered massive trials where um, the, the lead investigator has died or retired uh-huh. or switched jobs. or So it's actually a complex social thing and we need a system set up that actually copes with that. So now there's proof mm-hmm. there's proof that you can cope with it. So the HTA program in the UK run by the National Institutes of Health Research have a 98% publication rate for their trials. They are way out in front of anybody else. Mm-hmm. But that's because they have a managed process to make sure if things go wrong, they come in and help. Mm. But they also hold back 10% of the funds until you've actually got the report published mm-hmm. so, or at least accepted. So that's interesting. So so that's a very uh, interesting insight that you bring up. So it's uh, both they
0: seem to – I'd love to hear a bit more about the the way they manage it. Uh, If you know, we can dig it now. Otherwise, I'll I'll dig that up myself. But that seems interesting. But then also the other thing my my mind is perking up is, oh, they're holding back some of the funding. So we're talking about uh, incentives uh, and and how to align those better with the the goals
1: of, of the funders and the patients uh, ultimately yep. right so uh, yes so i i think you need systems to help help and assist with the um, re- with the reporting of the results but you also need some incentives i think you need to have a balance between those two so that's an incentive but you can also make things easier for reporting so for example one of the most dramatic things we've seen in the last few years here is that clinicaltrials.gov um, and the u.s Um, now ask you to submit your results to clinicaltrials.gov. So while you've posted the questionnaire um, uh, um, with its details, it's now mandatory for many groups to actually post the results as well. That's led to about a 10% absolute increase Mm. in the results being accessible. Mm -hmm. That's an important concept. And I think, Flavio, this is probably important in biology as well, is that even if you've got a failed experiment, for example, Mm -hmm. you may want to be able to post the results somewhere, even if you don't think you can get them published. Right. Because somebody else might use them. So I think we should move away from this idea that you have to publish everything but if you do an experiment, you should make your results available so someone can find them, even if they were negative, because that'll stop you doing the experiment again. Exactly.
0: That's that's uh, you bring up a great point. I mean, you know, and, and part of this waste is is uh, if 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 10, 10 groups of researchers do research the same thing, uh, all just to find out that it's that it's not working, uh, that's incredibly wasteful as, as well, right? That we're sort of not sharing the the uh, what didn't work. And, and so yep. uh, what, what do you think is, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a great point. Uh, but again, what, what I'm trying to understand here is what is it, uh, in the, uh, according to your view now, what needs to happen so that we can, so that, uh, uh, scientists are incentivized uh, to, to pub- publish or, or make accessible also negative results. It, it, what needs to happen in,
1: in your mind? yeah that's it's a complex answer to that There's no one solution to this, but the first thing is to have appropriate infrastructure in place um, to enable people to post results, for example, and to post the fact that they're doing studies um as an example of that, at the moment there's been an emphasis on clinical trials, so we have compulsory registration of clinical trials now, mm-hmm. but that's just a small proportion of all the research that gets done mm-hmm. okay so you so there have been groups working on it, the um, Ideal Group in Surgery, have now got a registry that enables you to post non-trial but surgical research. Mm-hmm. Um, Utrecht, Utrecht in the Netherlands have just been funded by Zon-M-V to um to allow animal research studies, the preclinical studies, to be mm-hmm. registered as well. So that's all necessary infrastructure that research funders, in a sense, have to help set up mm-hmm. to enable this to happen outside the normal publication routes Mm -hmm. um, so that people can find out what other people are doing and to know, oh, this other group's already doing that. Right. Right. That's, That's one piece of infrastructure that we need. Um, another piece is enabling people to post their results mm-hmm. and then the, we need the incentives like that idea of the uh, HTA program in the UK holding back 10% of funds yeah. or making it mandatory as they do in the US but they don't really enforce that at the moment but people worry enough that it is mandatory that it could be enforced or the NIH apparently you ca- you can't get re- a new grant unless you posted the results, published the results of the old grant mm-hmm. um, if they should have been published by that stage so there are all sorts of incentive things um, that need to be done and i think we just need to raise awareness that this podcast hopefully will do that this is a problem and that we need to look at ways of improving the overall system
0: got it so what i'm hearing is is a lot of it has to do with infrastructure and incentives and and so uh, in a way really the the funders i think are being uh, Asked to, to look at, uh, that more in detail. I mean, you mentioned the NIH and the groups in, in the UK and so on that they can really make a change. They can, they can uh, hold back the funding and they can also provide better infrastructure, uh, you know, registering the trials and then, and then make it mandatory to share data, whether it's, it's positive yep. or negative, right? And so uh, you yep. might have seen the uh, Gates Foundation's the new uh, initiative uh, with the open research, where I think that's a a move as well in that direction. Uh, have, have you seen that
1: uh, platform they, they, they announced recently? Uh, no, to tell me about that, Flavia. I've, I heard something about it, but I'm not. I don't know the details. Okay, so I'm,
0: I'm supposed to have. Uh, uh, maybe someone from the Gates Foundation on the podcast is, is my goal. Uh, and so, though, the, the, the my, my understanding is that they have a process there where, uh, you know, it, 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 exa- it, it, it nails some of the points you just mentioned uh, and, and where it's, 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 it's you, if you're funded by the Gates Foundation, you, uh, have to use their platform to, to publish a result. But the advantages are that you, you know, they have a seven day process from the moment you submit within seven days, they, they will publish. Uh, your article and then there's an open peer review ha- period happening after that. And sort of as you, go, as you go along the way as well, there's sort of uh, uh, you're incentivized to publish any results, whether positive or negative uh, and so on. So I think they're they're making great strides in that. And I think the NIH is being very supportive of their uh, work. And, and so there was some, some movement happening in, in that direction,
1: as you just mentioned, probably oh, from various,
0: that, various different parties.
1: That's right. So the- – I think there's, there's an interesting number of those. So that reminds me of the, um, the Open Science Foundation um, process, mm-hmm. which is similar, where you can actually run, there's, there's free software that you can set up your project, put the protocols up and do everything along the way. It's actually a great collaboration tool, but at the end of it, you can then press a button that says make this public as well, right. um, which which is one way of doing that. Which would give you the preliminary type results, and then you can you can still then send it into a journal for publication. Mm-hmm. But I actually think we should see the journals as a way of, in a sense, having a pretty summary version of the work that you can post up in a journal. Mm-hmm. But actually, all the all the stuff behind it that we also need, if you want to replicate the research, mm-hmm. like the protocols and mm-hmm. the, any materials are using, that they need to post a, a place that they could do it. I wouldn't like to see every funder separately set that up. I think yeah. we need the funders working with one another to say here are the standards that we think should put in place. There's actually one of the great things that's occurred out of the um, the series that we did on waste in research is that the funders now are, many of them are working with one another. There's mm-hmm. an ensuring value in research, the EVAR funders group mm-hmm. that is working on this that um, includes um, the NIHR and the UK MV in the Netherlands and um, the PCORI in the United States. And I think NIH um, had representatives at the latest meeting and about 40 other funders around the world who are looking at how they improve um, these research processes to make it more efficient and what infrastructure should be in place like this that would be necessary. So they're interested in the research registries, for example, Mm -hmm. in the sorts of frameworks we've just been talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm wonderful uh it's great so to hear it, would that. Be, it would be great if the gates group could join that group <laughs> as well yeah yeah
0: no absolutely i think i think i, I mean i think i completely agree that you know let, let's let's figure this out globally ideally once and for all and then everybody uh uses it and if we had a standard i think that would be a boon also to just make also researchers lives a a lot easier right if they sort of didn't have to learn a new system every time they want to publish something right and and for everyone to have a system they agree on and a standard at least uh, that sounds like the thing we should absolutely uh, work towards so so it's great to hear that that's that that's on the way uh and then i'd like to dig in just a little bit deeper in the other two issues what we talked now about that the non-publication stuff uh, a bit more detail. Now, the second thing you mentioned is, okay, so there's these studies coming out, but as a practitioner, uh, I'm, I, I, uh, you said you were not able to, to use them because you said it's not actually complete in a way. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what is happening there? What's missing? And what do you think is leading to the incompleteness of these, of these studies coming out?
1: Okay, so I'm going to talk particularly about clinical trials because that's the area that I've been working in and use, but the same happens with biological experiments as well. Mm -hmm. The most commonly missing thing is um, the materials, but there are lots of details that are missing. Mm -hmm. To give you an example of the materials, there was a study, a really interesting study done for whiplash treatment in the emergency room. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they showed patients a video that explained um, the prognosis of whiplash what they could do about it etc the, in the, in one group and that, then there was nothing no, no control video for the other group and it showed a dramatic effect right so there's no video though mm. so we, how do we get hold how do we implement this mm. so we wrote to the authors and they said well, actually we'd be no one's ever been interested. It would be really great if someone put this up on a public website to make this thing available. Mm. Now, that, that, was, that was about 15 years ago that happened mm-hmm. to me, and it made me think, gee, actually, there's a whole lot of this stuff that authors would like to make publicly available, but the mm. journals never ask for. Nobody ever writes to them about mm. this or the occasional person writes to it, but they get it for themselves. It's never made publicly mm-hmm. available. Mm-hmm. And we've come across that. T- Tammy Hoffman and I have been working to, on, on the thing called the Handbook of Non-Drug Interventions and mm-hmm. documenting the rates of these problems.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: happens time and time again. So what we'd like is a set of standards, and we have them for trial interventions. Now it's called tidier, which says, if you want to replicate it, here are the things you need to, to, mm. to provide to everybody.
0: Mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that
1: that's now a consort um, approved um, extension that tells you what is needed in the interventions and you'd probably need a similar thing for preclinical um, uh, research as well to mm-hmm. have a standard about what you need in that um, mm-hmm. treatment that you're giving to animals or that you're doing within a, a genetics ex- um, study for example mm-hmm. and then making the materials available to others, and where do you post those if the journals aren't actually asking them for you in the methods section?
0: Right, right. I was just going to say it sounds like it sounds like it's a part of the the methods section that really, I mean, as 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 a, as a you know as as a uh, layman, I would expect uh, uh, if you if you publish some results, you have to sort of explain how you got them, and so in the methods section, you would you would have to be explaining pretty pretty detailed how you, how you got that. But it seems like that's not always happening. And you're saying it's the journals aren't asking for it. And so there's sort of very little incentive for the, for the researchers to, to, it's, you know, it's extra work to document that, I guess. Uh, Yeah. And and,
1: and, and you know why I wouldn't, I wouldn't like the journals to control that because then it would mm. end up behind a paywall. Mm. So the, the Gates type idea of, yes, let's post this all up on a website somewhere, yeah. let the journals advertise it, but actually they shouldn't be able to put the materials behind a paywall. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. actually I like the idea of a separation between the, the mm. journal summary, if you like, and the, the materials and methods, et cetera, that would be needed, which shouldn't be behind – they should be open access
0: yeah yeah I, I mean i think we're definitely on the same page on the open access piece ideally everything should be open access and i think there's uh i mean there's lots of trends moving in that direction and again it's a, by the way a, a, a place where funders are playing a big role right in, in europe now we have horizon 2020 uh requiring if you get funding from them you have to publish and in open access journals, right? So, so they have quite, I mean, you know, they have the carrot and the stick, if you will. And I think I think yep. they're they're using that. They're starting to realize uh, some of the issues that you've been talking about for a long time, and and they're starting to uh, implement some of these, right? And I think maybe as a next step, but you know, requiring uh, precise protocols and the standards you mentioned would be another great step in in, in that direction, right? So, uh, I mean, yep. uh, studies that are not usable by clinicians like yourselves. I mean, that that really seems wasted or at least seems you have to do all this extra work of emailing them and getting it out. And and it just seems that that should be a a really standard part of how you, how you publish uh, biomedical research. So, um,
1: yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Otherwise, that particular intervention get, ends up being used by the three people who email the author and yeah. not the thousands of people, thousands of clinicians who and patients who may benefit from that particular intervention.
0: Yeah. That seems like an easy win if you're look, you know, looking at it from yep. the outside. It's an easy win that we could implement and would have a huge uh, impact on it. Um, great. Yeah. As I,
1: as I often say, you could salvage a half-million-dollar trial for $100. Wow.
0: God, I crazy. can't think
1: of anything, anything in in medicine or anywhere that's so as cost effective as doing that. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very high return on investment. So, <laughs> yep. uh, it's good to have that. Let's let's dig in a little little bit, uh, just in the last issue, which is the uh, design flaws, the avoidable design flaws. I'm really curious because that again, that seems fifty uh, percent. That seems like a crazy high number. Uh, yep what are what are the the, the, the most common ways in, in which uh, design flaws occur and then maybe also why do you think they occur
1: okay um, so there are two broad categories here Flavio um, one is the problem of um, just the um, the design, methods so things like proper blinding or proper randomization in a clinical trial which are often done poorly mm-hmm. and this is um I think people not understanding how to implement those um, technical procedures so getting a statistician or someone experienced with the processes involved in the trial for a very small investment of a bit of help there or training of the investigators mm-hmm. um, could could salvage something um, that which which um, would cost a small amount, but make a huge amount of difference in terms of the, um, the, the benefits to the validity of the study. Mm-hmm. So that's one problem. The second problem is people, in a sense, um, not, not building on the research that has previously been done. Mm. So most, most research appears not to have done a systematic review before they do new research. There are two reasons for doing the systematic review. One is the question that you're asking may already be answered. In my team here, we'd always check first of all, and and I'm just astonished at how many questions that we dream up for research proposals have actually already been answered. Right. But people don't do the systematic reviews. The other is the systematic review is necessary to work out the the best way of trying to advance the science in that area. If If they're studies have been done but they've been flawed methods you don't want to use the flawed methods again you want to say okay well everyone's criticized the studies of this particular topic because let's now do the blinded study Mm -hmm. you know that was happened with the the orbiter trial recently for um stents um where everyone had done unblinded studies so somebody said well we must do a blinded study And they discovered that stents for stable coronary disease made no difference to the symptoms of the patients compared with a placebo stent. Mm. So, you know, let's look at all the research. However, that turns out to be difficult to do. A systematic review typically takes somewhere between six months and two years to do wow so we've become that's you know trying to find all the research you're trying to find all of the 10 needles in that haystack out there mm-hmm. trying to mm-hmm. make trying to throw it throw out all the rusty needles mm-hmm. and just get the good ones and yeah. then say what do i make of all of these and that process actually t- takes a lot of effort and i can under- so I understand why people don't do it mm-hmm. so we've got a, an international collaboration now it's Um, to try and do it a little bit inspired by the Human Genome Project. It was Mm -hmm. such a big task, difficult for any one group to do this. Let's get all the groups around the world to work on how to automate systematic reviews Mm. to at least make machines do quite a lot of the the stupid grunt work that you have to do in a systematic review of finding and extracting a whole lot of stuff out of the studies and let's leave the human beings to do the thinking part of it. And I think we're making progress with that. But that will that will transform the way that we can use pre-existing um, research um, in order to inform new research.
0: So, so I think we're we're getting to a really interesting uh, topic right now. So, so what I'm hearing is, I mean, if I hear now that you know six months to two years of of doing systematic uh, review just to make sure uh i'm asking the right questions that you know that are interesting and that haven't been answered before uh that's a lot of uh that's a big investment right i have to be uh really uh interested in this topic for a long time uh and so i yep. can i can see some of the uh, uh problems coming from that but it seems so critical to do that right as as you said and, and uh um, and then and now I'd love to hear just a little more about uh, you said that let's have the machines do that is is are we talking about uh, uh, sort of uh, using machine learning artificial intelligence to sort of gain intelligence or tell us a little bit more about those efforts uh, It seems uh, qu- quite interesting and promising.
1: Yeah, so some of it would involve machine learning. It, it, it's different for different steps. So there's about 15 steps in a review process to pull yeah. together the question, then to do the search of multiple databases, to translate the search between those databases. So we've written a thing that once you've written it in one database, will translate the search terms into all the other databases mm-hmm. automatically for you. Mm-hmm. They used mm-hmm. to take hours of work and now it takes one, one second to do. And then you've got to merge the databases and deduplicate it. We've got something mm-hmm. that does that basically perfectly now. Oh. Then you've got to do a t- title and abstract screen to try and find the those needles in that um, each slightly smaller haystack because you've removed, mm-hmm. removed the duplicates. And that's where a machine learning process, several people have worked out machine learning algorithms, a group in Boston, a group in London. Um, have developed those tools. They're still not perfect, but they're, mm-hmm. they certainly cut down the workload quite a mm-hmm. lot. Mm-hmm. They're not being used routinely. Then mm-hmm. there's data extraction. You've actually found, you know, a dozen articles that help answer this question. But what I've got to do is extract the data from them about the quality of the research mm-hmm. and about the details of their results. And again, mm-hmm. that takes a lot of human time to pull that together. There's a thing called Robot Reviewer, which will extract uh, automatically for you and make a reasonable assessment about the quality of the research. Mm, and there's work nice. being done done on extracting the, the data as well from the tables and figures. Mm-hmm. So for each of those steps, there's, there is some work that has been done for almost every step.
0: That, what we don't all.
1: have at the moment is a system that pulls them all together um, so that it's much easier for the end user. So it's all this stuff is sort of out there, but it's not being used extensively. Um, because it hasn't um, been pulled together in a good way, um, and also there are some limitations to the way things are being done. But it's an mm. area of infrastructure again that we need to invest mm-hmm. in to stop wasting redoing research that doesn't need to be done. Without that infrastructure in place, you just can't do that job, essential job, um, correctly.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely. It, it, it's just great to hear that you guys, that people are using uh you know technologies such as machine learning to to tackle these these different steps in the process uh and and uh so I, i'm just wondering can uh, are these efforts uh, public can can uh, can can the general public or those scientists can they, can they use them and, and and if so where can we where can we find uh, these tools
1: yeah, so most there's no single place. So one, we set up a thing called the Vienna Principles at a meeting a couple of years ago at one of the Cochrane meetings um, oh, yeah. about this. Um, and one of the principles is that we need to automate all of the steps and another is that those automation tools should be made publicly available. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you still need some intermediary, some um, backbone of software that will plug those tools in. Mm -hmm. so there are groups in our collaboration that are doing that for example epi reviewer that james thomas does in london um there's the Rayanne group in qatar um and there's covidence which is a group in melbourne that works closely with Cochrane, who are trying to integrate those tools and some of the commercial groups like um distiller sr in canada um so there's so there's no one piece of software at the moment that that integrates all of these Mm -hmm. um but there's a series of people who are working with that group who are developing the individual tools to try and put them together into their pieces of software. Most of the tools that I just mentioned, though, that are actually publicly available. It's just that you have to piece the pieces together yourself mm. um, to be able to use them. So Robot Reviewer, for example, is not integrated, as far as I know, into any of those systems, but it's mm. freely available. and we, we use it. If you just type in robot reviewer, all one word, you'll find the tool and you can just, it's beautiful. You drop the PDF in, it comes back in a few seconds while you make a cup of coffee and it's, um, you can actually drop several PDFs in. And it says, here is what I think the risk of bias is in terms of the blinding, the follow-up, et cetera, for these trials. And it tells you what piece of text it used to base that on. It sounds really cool. Uh Paul, I'm going to check that out right after uh, our podcast and and
0: uh yeah, it's something that I really <laughs> want to get. Into. That sounds really fun. fun. So, yeah, so, so so uh uh you know to round it up maybe is is there uh, anything that uh you've recently discovered any technology or research or anything that uh uh, you think is most exciting and that and maybe uh, our listeners should be uh, should be checking out as well. It can be anything, a research or a, or, or, or a software or something that uh, would be a fun and, and interesting to look at.
1: All right. Um, so I think the most exciting thing that we're engaged in is, that relates to this automation of systematic review is a thing called RevMan Hal. Hal was the robot in 2001, so it was a geeky guy who invented this. Um, And what it does is it it takes the analytic results of a systematic review and it writes the results section and part of the discussion and part of the abstract for you. Mm. So, again, this is speeding up the whole process of the systematic review. One of the fantastic... So I got Clive Adams, who runs the Cochrane Schizophrenia Group, originally um, developed this, and we're now doing some work to try and extend that. It's a brilliant idea, though, and one of the beauties of it is that it can generate the that text that I'm talking about mm-hmm. in any language that you happen to to put into it.
0: Wow. So
1: at the moment, it actually works in you know English. So I think it's Spanish, Chinese, and German. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's easily extensible to all languages. So rather than thinking about translating research, which is the, the sort of brute force way of doing it, this is generating the text to describe your analytical results. And so we would make make the research much more accessible and you won't have to bother with the clunky translation step because you've sort of done this pre-translation process Mm -hmm. for standardised things like clinical trials and systematic reviews. So I find that a really exciting thing because one of the big barriers for using research around the globe is, um, and one of my German colleagues, Gerd Andes, keeps pointing this out, the biggest barrier is actually the translation problem. Mm. Most of the world can't read the English language research why wow. don't we um, make make that um, translated? So this would solve that problem, but also speeds up the process of doing the review. And we've got colleagues who use in, in who are who don't speak English as their first language who love Rave Man Hal because mm-hmm. they can get a first draft of their results section written in in moments, and then mm-hmm. they then they can rewrite it. They find that first draft as a non English speaker really difficult. Mm, mm. Wow, that's
0: uh, an issue I've never thought about. And, and uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, seriously. I mean, that's the little things, and that that's that's really what I'm hoping to to uncover with the with this podcast is is you know you know quote unquote seemingly little uh, things we can do, but they could translate into huge wins for yep. for scientists and and, and 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 ultimately patients around the world. So so wonderful. I think that's a great uh, 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 note to end the, uh, our interview now. Uh, and I'll be uh, uh, I'll be pinging you about those uh, links. Um, I want to make sure I get, get all of them correctly. And I'll I'll, 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 uh, I'll put them in the show notes. For, for I think people will find those yeah. uh, most things. So uh, would, yeah, Paul. That was great. Okay, good. I just want to thank you. Uh, it was a very informative uh, chat. Uh, learned a lot, and, and probably going to be digging a, a lot deeper into some of the things we've uh,
1: talked about. So thanks a ton, Paul. Okay, great, Flavio. Nice to talk. Okay. Bye for now. Okay i